You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. If I were to ask you, what do you believe is the most central doctrine to the Christian faith, I wonder what you would say. Because there are so many different doctrines, so many important doctrines even. Uh, Maybe it's not a fair question to pit some doctrines against other doctrines, but for entertainment purposes only. Just think for a second of all the various things you believe about God, of all the things you've been taught to believe about God. Which ones do Christianity really hang on? I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong answer, but I'm going to give you a response that I believe is the linchpin for the entire Christian faith. And it's probably the most complex and yet foundational belief in all of Christianity. And that is the Trinity. The belief, the reality that God is one God in three distinct persons. And we have attempted to describe it with Eggs, shamrocks, uh, forms of water, uh, none of which are adequate to describe God. Um, And yet we continue to foolishly attempt to do that. Michael Reeves calls the Trinity the cockpit of all Christian thinking. Now, why in a passage like 1 Peter 13 through 22 that doesn't really reference the Trinity do I bring this up? Because a fundamental lack of clarity around who God is and a real crisis of identity in who we are will lead us to listen to that text and hear a bunch of do's and don'ts. The big question, the big idea we always come back to is who actually is God? Karl Barth, a Swiss theologian, says this. Perhaps you recall... When Hitler used to speak about God, he called him the Almighty. But it is not the Almighty who is God. We cannot understand from the standpoint of a supreme concept of power who God is. And the man who calls the Almighty God misses God in the most terrible way. For the Almighty is bad as power in itself is bad. The Almighty means chaos, evil, and the devil. We could not better describe and define the devil than by trying to think about this idea of self-based, free, sovereign ability. Now, Barth is not denying that God is mighty, but he is making it clear that mere might is not who God is. See, if God's very identity is creator, then he needs us. (laughs) By his very name, he must create something in order to be who he claims to be. But we know that God doesn't need us. And if God's very identity is ruler, and the problem is that I have broken the rules, and then the only salvation he can offer me is to forgive me and treat me as if I had kept the rules. But if that is fundamental to who God is, my relationship to him is akin to a divine policeman. If I were to be pulled over for speeding and thus breaking the rules, I would be fined. I would be punished. And if I somehow evaded the traffic cop, but was still speeding, I would be relieved. But neither in being punished, nor in being relieved, would I love the cop. 
And even if the traffic cop caught me and chose to let me off the hook, counting me as a law-abiding citizen, I still would not love him. I would be grateful toward him. I would be thankful that I would be keeping $200, but being grateful is not the same thing as love. And so it is with a divine policeman. If salvation simply means letting me off and counting me as a law-abiding citizen, then gratitude is all I have. In other words, I can never really love the God who is essentially just the ruler. And that means I can never keep the first and greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God. But God is not first and fundamentally the creator, and he is not first and fundamentally the ruler. First and foremost, above anything else, before anything else, God is Father. And to be a father, one must father someone. In the high priestly prayer before Jesus trudges up to Golgotha, Jesus prays, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. Before the Father ever created anything and before he ever ruled anyone, God the Father was loving God the Son. The greatest comfort that we have about God is not his abstractness, but the fact that he is by his very nature Father, because by his very nature, there is a son. And so what does it mean that God is father and that he's always been father? It means that he is inherently life giving, meaning if he's always been a father, then he's always had a son. A father is a person who gives life, who begets children. God did not start giving life when humanity was created. He has never not been giving life because he's never not been in relationship with the son. He is life giving. He is love. And it's important to note that if it's not as if God the father created God the son so that he could love him. Because if that were the case, there would have been a time where God the father was not a father. Because there would not have been a son. And if there was not a son, then once upon a time, God would not have been loving since all by himself, he would have had nobody to love. God the Father is who God is. And by his very name and nature, he loves. And now those of us who have surrendered to Jesus and said to him, I receive your love. I come out of the shadows. I step into a life-giving relationship with you. I inherit what is yours. That makes God, or as the Jews would call him, Yahweh, their father. And we are his child, and that is our identity. And the temptation when we read passages like the one that was just read is to hear a list of commands apart from our identity. The main point of the Bible is not to address our behavior. It is to address our identity. Namely, it is to address our desire. Adam and Eve in the garden did not step outside the light of God's love because they ate of the fruit. They stepped outside the light of God's love because they desired something else, something more, namely to be God. 
Jesus is pretty clear. You can have appropriate behavior. You can be a considerably moral person and be nothing more than a whitewashed tomb. You can be cleaned up and you can be dead at the same time. Maybe arguably the greatest example of this is in Luke 8. The devil and his cohort were tormenting a man. Jesus steps on the scene and all of a sudden the man falls down and with a loud cry says, Son of God, do not torment me. Son of God, do not torment me. And Jesus begins speaking with the demons. Some would call this worship. The posture of the devil, prostrate. (laughs) He fell down. That is a worshipful posture. The acknowledgement of who Jesus is, the Son of God, that is a theologically accurate statement. So here is the enemy, in some ways praying to God, talking to God, (laughs) asking God to not crush him, and yet as many have pointed out throughout theological writings, there was one thing missing. Love. See, if following Jesus is namely about behavior, the devil here is not sinning. But the call to follow Jesus is to embrace your identity that we reject all the time. That is to open-handedly receive the loving affection of the Father through the Son, By the Holy Spirit. We are going through 1 Peter this semester. And the first 12 verses that we looked at a few weeks ago are focused on how the people of God came to be who they were. Right? You have an inheritance secured by Jesus. You have resurrection life secured by Jesus. You have the outcome of your faith is healing. It's deliverance. It's salvation. This is the good news of what God has done. It is the good news of what God is doing through your current sufferings. And it is the good news of what is coming to hope. That we have. So there is no exhortation to a life of devotion to God without first coming to grips with who you are as a child of God. It is about identity. So you are both a child of the Father and a stranger in the world. And if you do not believe your identity is a son or a daughter, then you will not look to your Father. You will not enjoy the gaze of his glance. You will not run to him in moments of success or cry to him in moments of doubt. You will not have intense or casual conversations with him. He will be a belief, an idea, but he will not be a person. And you will not find him worth pursuing. Experiencing God as father will be nearly impossible if you do not believe that you are his child. You might be terrified of him because your view of God as father will be clouded by ruling with an iron fist. God is going to strike me before he ever loves me. Or you might be apathetic toward him, bored with the idea that some unknown deity somewhere up there has any care in the world about what's going on down here, much less with me. Or you might be unimpressed with him. If God so loved the world, why do earthquakes take the lives of 30,000 innocent people? Or you might see him as sentimental. He makes for a really nice hobby. A helpful add-on that makes life just a little bit more bearable. But you will not see him as your all-consuming father. Nor will you worship Jesus as king. Nor will you feel and be indwelt with the power of the Holy Spirit. If you do not first become embraced in the loving arms of God. Every other starting place 
will lead to shame. I am the worst things that have ever been done to me. Every other starting place will lead to guilt. I am the worst things I have ever done. Every other starting place will lead to performative spirituality. I am enough. I can be enough. I must be enough for other people. I will keep it together. And the gospel of Jesus starts with a forgotten word, and that is grace. There is no attribute that you have that is going to move God's heart toward you where he is going to think, wow, that is impressive. You are impressive. Our lives are unimpressive to the one who counts stars, creates heartbeats, and showers affection on those who have denied his embrace. And while there's nothing that you do that will impress God, there's also nothing that you do where God thinks, yeah, you know what, now, now I am out. Like I was on the fence, and I was hedging my bets towards you, but now that has put me over the line, and you were done. The Father says that you are His. And let me say this with as much compassion and sympathy as I can, because I know, I know some of your stories. And if your struggle has ever been with your family of origin, then it's likely that embracing God as Father will feel near impossible. And I just want you to hear me say that I realize for many of you, the intimacy of calling God Dad and experiencing God as Father is part, I'm sure, part intimidating, part painful. And the good news is that God the Father is not some pumped up version of our fathers. Or even if you are finding yourself a father. We are meant to image him. He does not image us. We are called to reflect his heart. His heart does not reflect ours. So he is the starting place. We are way downstream. So whatever your relationship is with your dad. No. That the abuse and the neglect and the apathy and some of the very valid pain and the collective failings that may be present in your own earthly father do not say anything about your heavenly one. They say a lot about us. And if you were a dad in here who knows all too well their own failings. The comfort that you can take is that the reason God is so distinct from us is his willingness to extend forgiveness to us where we have chosen to not forgive ourselves. He is calling you back to be a child again. And if you have ever struggled with the feeling of being a parent who is failing, go read 1 John because every time there seems to be a break in the paragraph or he takes a pause, he readdresses his listeners and he says, children, little children. He's not saying it in a demeaning way. He's actually saying it in an endearing one. When the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, what are the first words? Words that come out of his mouth pray like this, our father. No priest or prophet before Jesus had ever alluded to the all-consuming God that showed up in seemingly all-invoking ways 
all throughout the Old Testament as dad. The God that visited Moses, who told him to remove the shoes off his feet because the ground he was standing on was so distinct, he could not put his, he had to put his bare feet there. God's, that God, that God says, call me father. And the God that visited Elijah, when he built an altar, doused it with water and then called on God to send fire from heaven to consume the bull offering. And he did. And all the people there responded, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. That God says, call me dad. And the God whose presence resided in the Ark of the Covenant with the people of Israel, the place where you could never touch the ark because the unclean would have touched the clean and you would have died. And so there were poles made of wood overlaid with gold where the people would carry the ark. That God you could never touch says, I am your father who loves you. Reckoning with our identity is the first step to acting out of our identity. Believing the scandal that God the Father has brought you into the family, that alone is worth years and years and years of reflection. You are not what you have done, but what's been done for you are not what you do. The shame and the guilt has been removed from you. You are not your old name. You have a new one. The famous story of the prodigal son is not really a story about a wayward kid who made some mistakes and found his way back home. And it's not really a story about the stingy older brother who wants his younger sibling to receive justice because of how he spoiled the inheritance. The story, we have called it the prodigal son. The story should be called the prodigal God. Because it's a story about a father who moves heaven and earth to pursue the younger son who shamed him and the older son who blames him. The father's pursuit of throwing off his robe and breaking out the fine china and running to meet his kid who is wallowing in shame and suffering because of choices that he has made. And all he wants is to be back in, his, in the master's house. And, and the dad says, servant? Servant. No, son. You are my son. And I have found you. Thomas Merton says, we make ourselves what we are by the way we address God. What is the way you address God? It is a sobering question. And years and years of addressing God one way will alter the way you view him. So when we read 1 Peter, our natural instinct is to think, I have got to do more. But nothing of substance and nothing of consequence happens if we are not first becoming intimately familiar with who God is and who we are in light of that. So if the first 12 verses focus on how we became the people of God, the next 12 focus on what the people of God are empowered to do, the outworking of our identity. So there's really two distinct things that Peter exhorts them to. He first says, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Different affections. Many years ago, in a small European town, there was a man named Giovanni. He was an ex-soldier who had recently decided to give everything he owned to the poor. And word got around town, was he mad? Was he delusional? Was he having an epiphany? 
So a local lawyer, Bernard of Quintavale, wanted to find out for himself. So he invited him to his house to stay the night. And he spied on him through a secret peephole that he built. Which is weird. It's very weird. Okay, I'm not trying to normalize it. It's very strange. Ten, zero out of ten would recommend that. And during the night, he watched him. Uh, but here's what happens. Giovanni gets up every hour on the hour and kneels beside his bed and prays, my God and my all, my God and my all. And Bernard was so moved and was so inspired by this devotion, this affection that he followed in Giovanni's footsteps. He too gave all he had to those on the margins and became his, became his first disciple. Within that year, 10 more had joined in. Within a decade, 5,000 more had joined in. And within 20 years, the course of European history would be realigned by the simple teaching of Giovanni, now more commonly known as Francis of Assisi. Vladimir Lenin said, give me 10 men like Francis of Assisi and I will rule the world, which is ironic given that Francis and his followers wanted the opposite of ruling the world, having relinquished power and money and prestige for the sake of pure devotion to God. Theirs was not a revolution founded on domination, but on adoration. The compelling simplicity of a fully surrendered life that cries out night and day, my God and my all, my God and my all. A change of affection. This is what Peter is referencing. And really, there are two types of idols that plague us, that draw on our affections, right? The first is the idol of the heart. Psychologists call them attachments. John Calvin calls them little gods. The writer of John calls them idols. They are merely created things that we elevate to pseudo-divinity in our hearts, right? And the great challenges with the idols of the heart is that we can keep up legitimate appearances we can have vibrant interpersonal relationships. We can even do spiritual disciplines, all the while being suffocated by what is taking up residence within us. So it can look like things like uh, financial security. Maybe you're very preoccupied with how your investments are looking. And, and there's just a general sense of how do I make more money? What can I do to procure more financial freedom so I can live how I want to live and do what I want to do? It's subtle. It's very subtle. But just the daily checking of the stock market over the course of a decade will create in you an idol. Money, by the way, is not the problem. The desire for more of it is. Maybe it's your job. Your heart is constantly thinking about promotions how do you figure out how to get ahead? You live and die by the approval of your supervisors. You're constantly angling, how do I edge out my peers? Or maybe, maybe it's just your ego. The most difficult thing for you to do is just to admit when you've been wrong. And the thing in your gut that wells up every time you've made a mistake but refuse to admit it just eats away at you. 
We all have idols. We all have attachments. We all have things that occupy the emotional space in our souls. We all have things that before we encountered the risen Jesus consumed who we were. And as I was reading this this week, it was a helpful model for me of how to think about evangelism. Because the idea of evangelism gets a really bad rap. And I think one of the reasons is it's because we are so boxed into sharing the goodness of God in such a confined way. What if the way you talked about Jesus wasn't, let me tell you about the atoning work of the Son of God that died on the cross 2,000 years ago and that if you would just believe in Him, you would not go to hell. What if it was more, let me tell you who I was before God absolutely blew up my life. I was addicted to pornography, hooked to the drug of sexual pleasure to the point where I was on edge during class waiting to get home so I could get a hit of dopamine. But then God exposed me and showed me that what I was doing was contributing to the objectification of people who are made in his image and that sexual pleasure is not the height of human existence, but that God will meet me in the experience of loneliness. And now God has placed me in a family. He calls it his church. And I still have sexual desires. And at times they expose themselves in unhealthy ways, but they no longer dictate my affections and consume my thoughts. Or I constantly craved the approval and the attention of anyone that would give me something so much so that I would manipulate and lie my way into being impressive with peers and adults because I so desperately needed to be loved and was not finding that at home. But then God met me and comforted me by showing me the kind of father that he is and opened me up to realize I don't have anyone to actually impress. My need to manipulate and chameleon my way into every relationship was not contributing anything to who God made me to be. And Jesus has set me free from manipulation and showed me the way of honesty. Or I experienced so much shame as a kid and I experience so much shame now. Because of what happened to me at the hands of other people. And I would constantly replay what I did wrong. And that became the dominant narrative of my life. And I viewed every interaction I ever had with anyone through the lens of the sin and the trauma that I'd experienced. But then God met me. And He restored me. And He removed the shame that I had carried around with me for 30 years. And He gave me supernatural power to somehow bizarrely forgive people who had done unthinkable things to me. And now I walk around in freedom wanting others to know that the shame they carry is not the story God is writing for them. Or I was an angry individual. Every interaction I came into with someone was a fight. And I was never able to come to grips with the fact that I could or might be wrong on something. So everyone I knew experienced me as someone with a power struggle. But then I met Jesus And he welcomed my anger into his presence and he softened my heart by loving me even though I was so unlovable and I was so unlikable. And I still wrestle with anger and a quick temper, but I am learning the way of the gentle Savior who says he will have compassion on me. And I've never, ever, 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 ever met someone who receives my anger but doesn't leave me in it. You see how different those are? Those are all true stories, by the way, of people I know. I don't think your story is dissimilar to that. All evangelism is, is sharing about what God has delivered you from and who God has delivered you to. 
It is a change of affection and desire that results in a life wholly surrendered. And the more acquainted you become with sharing your story, the more natural it will flow from your heart. And so the exhortation Peter is giving the Christians is to consider their way of life. To not go back. Don't revert back to the old ways of living. And really what it is, is don't revert back to the ways of hiding. Running from. Escaping. The love of God. So there are heart idols, and then there are also cultural idols. We all know about the political polarization we currently live in, which the temptation really is more about tribalism, because inherently we are all tribalistic people. How do I get more people on my team? Unfortunately, that has come at the cost of significant relationships because politics is a God and voting booth is an altar. And it is eating our world from the inside out. Maybe it's less serious than that. Maybe it's sports. You just can't get enough of said sports team. This city loves sports, by the way. Eight Saturdays out of the year in the fall, the entire city turns upside down as literally over 10% of our city makes its way down to what is considered the Roman Colosseum of Knoxville. And they watch 18-year-olds throw a ball around. (laughs) There are hundreds of millions of dollars spent in making sure that thing is running smoothly. The highest paid public employee in the state of Tennessee is the football coach. And I personally very, 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 very vividly, remember I can put myself there right now, Freshman year, Sunday evening, we lost. (laughs) We were terrible in our freshman year of college. We lost, and I was in my dorm room, and I was emotionally upset 24 hours after a game had ended. And I was sitting on my bed. I was by myself. And it was as audible as I've ever heard the Lord without being audible. It was a whisper. You have a problem. (laughs) You have a problem. And I did. He did not have to say anything else because I knew I had a problem. Maybe it's just the appearance of being a Christian. In this city, that gets you pretty far. Keeping up appearances, don't ruffle feathers, be put together person, you'll do just fine. Comfortable cultural Christianity that has no desire to disrupt the status quo for the kingdom and does not take seriously the invitations that Jesus explicitly asked in the New Testament, specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. That, not doing that, is an idol. And here is where it gets difficult for us because we have been so discipled by our world. It is hard for us to get outside of ourselves to see the idols that both take over our own hearts and our cultures. And Jesus wants all of us. He desires personal holiness. No one had a clear vision of sexual ethics in Jesus who was single all his life. And no one had a vision for finances like Jesus did. And he was the most fulfilled human being to have ever lived. But Jesus also wants his followers to care about justice. A call to private holiness without love of neighbor is spiritual wellness. It is self-care. 
Some call it spiritual therapy. We have tried to split the atom of personal holiness and collective justice. There is no splitting the atom in the kingdom. They are one thing. And to be frank, a church in our city that is committed to the whole gospel for the whole world is going to feel homeless. Some of the harshest criticism we read in the entire scripture, Jesus levies against the church in Revelation 2 and 3. And what he is talking about is the people of God claiming to be the people of God who have affections for a lot of other things other than God. And he says, get out. And then Peter says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So there's different affections and there's different lifestyle. And when we hear the exhortation, be holy for I am holy, our first instinct is to think, what do I need to do, start doing more of? And that line of thinking then begins to start this really long list of what do I need to do more of? And it gets overwhelming. And instead of doing anything, we do nothing. <laughs> so here's a really good question. Where do you start? And I think instead of brainstorming various ways of how to start being more holy, I think it might be helpful to start asking God. What do you want to show me? If you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, how did he start his entire ministry? What did he do? How did Jesus gain power? How did he get free from all the people that wanted to use him? How did he withstand all the temptations that were levied against him? Where did Jesus commune with his father before he performed any miracle? Before he ever gave any compelling sermon, before he ever started any communal discipleship program, he was taken out to the desert by the Holy Spirit and he abstained from food. He fasted. See, the second Adam did, Jesus, what the first Adam failed to do. Surrounded by providence and delight, Adam bowed to the alluring invitation of the enemy with a simple question. Did God really say? And surrounded by weakness and most likely craving something to eat, Jesus had the opposite response. Allured by the devil, Jesus' spirit had been strengthened through fasting. His self-control firmed up and his delight in the Father overpowered his hunger for food. In a word, he was free. There is something about starving the flesh to feed the spirit that tunes our hearts to the power of God within us so that we are not slaves to our appetites, both our physical and our emotional ones. And one of the things that fasting can help you do, and it, I, I say this honestly more so from personal experience, though I do know there are other people who have had this experience. One of the things it can help you do is it can help you fight significant apathy. It will create a hunger in you and a conviction in you, and it will fight the great enemy of the pursuit of God, apathy. Potentially, our greatest challenge in the church in the West and our greatest challenge in our little corner of the kingdom is not trying to fight 
the devil through spiritual warfare that is sort of happening out there in the public space or even happening internally, although there is significant credence to that. I am more convinced that most spiritual warfare in this church and in most churches like ours is just through apathy. It's just, we're just apathetic. We, we have a 60% devotion to God and a 40% devotion to a lot of other really cool things in our life. It was the church at Lady Osea that God calls lukewarm and spits them out. Why? Apathy. The hunger for God had waned and the apathy had settled in. The pursuit of Jesus phased the background and the call from the Spirit was not heeded. Do not grow weary. Do not grow tired in doing good. Rather, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We were not meant for survival mode. In survival mode, we typically lose our capacity to care. We lose a sense of zeal. And life ends up about being about reacting, not about living. Even this past week, I saw an acquaintance out in the community. And she said, hey, how's it going? And I said, I'm here. And I, I caught myself and I said, well, I'm sorry, that, that is true. I am here. Uh, what, I was, what I was communicating was I'm tired. Um, but I said, but I don't want that to be my response to you. And she was really kind and extremely caught off guard. Uh, and rightfully so. And it was like, you don't have to apologize. Uh, and I was like, I know, I know. But I'm more saying this out loud for myself. I don't like that I'm merely keeping my head above water. We are meant for more than that. I was meant for more than that. And then, of course, it got real awkward, real fast. She awkwardly backed away. It was this whole interaction. Uh, but I have just, I, I haven't lost that moment where I just like, it was coming out of my mouth. And I was like, I don't want my response to life. To be that I'm just here. There is a way to live in the world where you are operating from a place of centering that requires a level of intentionality at a pace that is sustainable. And this is not a guilt trip for anyone who finds themselves in that spot. I think that is a spot of our culture. Busyness is a sign of character. Running fast is a sign of advancement, both of which is the treadmill that we can never get off and is not getting us anywhere. And I just thought this week, as after, I had that after I had that interaction with this woman, I, I asked myself, have I ever had an interaction with someone where I asked how it was going for them? And they responded with, you know, life is really, really sweet right now because it is so very slow. We are walking at a snail's pace. We are living at peace. We live somewhat quiet lives and we love it. I think most of us would say that sounds wonderful and feels pretty unattainable. And the truth is that it's not unattainable. I want us to become the people who live in such a way where that is our response. 
where we are aggressively attacking our sin and we are quietly living at peace with who we are in God. If we want to be holy, first find out what are your loves. What do you love? And nothing will expose what controls you and what you love more than fasting. So this coming Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, which marks the beginning of Lent, which is the season from now until Easter on the church calendar that brings us to bear with our mortality and the reason for our mortality, which is our sin. And Lent is an opportunity for us to engage in a communal fast. So we're every Wednesday or Pick another day of the week that you would like to choose. But where every Wednesday up until Easter week, we collectively as a church say we are going to abstain from food from sun up until dinner time. And instead of feeding our stomachs, we're going to feed our spirits. And instead of eating, we're going to pray. Now, no one is forcing you to do this. It is merely invitational, just like everything is in this church, I hope. It is not coercion or a have-to thing. It's just an invitation. In some ways, it is a want-to thing. But let me tell you, it is not an easy thing. It is probably, there is a reason why. It is likely the most neglected spiritual discipline of all the spiritual disciplines in the Western church. Culturally, it is not easy because we live in a culture where food is everything. We eat three meals a day. We snack a lot. We're addicted to sugar and caffeine. Eating is pleasurable. Eating is communal. Half of the ads we receive every day are about food. And individually, it's not easy because we love food. Eating is integral to our lives. A lot of us love eating and you have to eat to live. So fasting from something that you genuinely love and fasting from something that you genuinely need is hard. But it's not just hard because your stomach is growling and you're like, I really don't want to pray right now. I'd rather just eat these peanuts or whatever. Um, it's not hard because you have hunger pains. It's hard because once you fight through your stomach growling, you get to a place of deeper desires. And most of us do not want to look them in the face. What is going on underneath? What other appetites are growing in you that you desire to squash? God is inviting us to something more. And first and foremost, he is inviting us to himself. The fact that our view of God shapes our lives to a great extent may be one of the reasons Scripture ascribes such importance to seeking to know him. Fasting is not about keeping yourself from food. Fasting is about hungering for God. And Lent is about seeking the face of God. And this church, this, you, this, this group of people, I believe, desire God and the things his kingdom is made up of. And you want to desire it more than you do. And so fasting is an invitation and an exercise in doing that thing. So my prayer for this church over the next eight weeks is that a fresh hunger for God would fall on us 
So much so that we become enamored with who he is and it vastly shakes us out of our apathy that so generally marks us as the Western church. That is what I'm praying for. And that's what we'll pray for now. Father, we do desire you. And we don't desire you like we want to. Would you help us? Would you meet us? Would you fill our hearts with a fresh hunger and desire to seek to know you? You tell us in the scriptures, seek first the kingdom of God. You tell us that if we are thirsty, if we are hungry, you will fill us. So that is what we are after. God, would you fill our hearts with more of your presence, more of your conviction, and more of your desire to see heaven come to earth. To be in communion with you. The Holy Trinity. The, the community of love, we want to be enveloped in that community. And so we welcome your presence and we call on you to move and act in us as a people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.